so uh, <laughs> that's hate. But anyway, I'm just going to shake it off. Uh, <laughs> let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come yet again to be amazed by our Lord as we look at Mark's Gospel together. And we pray that we will uh, set aside the things that might uh, distract us and that you will help us understand your word correctly. But more than that, we pray that uh, through this passage tonight, you will convict us of the truth of your gospel and that you will help us not to be Pharisees, but instead to be people who come to Jesus to be washed clean. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this year, I took Sam, my uh, eldest child, and some of his mates to see the Avengers movie. Has anyone seen the Avengers movie? A few people. A few people. There you go. It's uh, one of those superhero movies, if you haven't seen it. Uh, and what I discovered was I really enjoyed it, but I hadn't realised that you have to have seen about 17 other movies to understand anything that was going on in that movie. Uh, because every one of those superheroes apparently has three or four of their own movies that sort of feed the backstory in. So as I'm watching it, I thought, this is great. There's explosions happening everywhere. I'm really enjoying this. I have absolutely no idea who you are. I don't know who's a good guy. I don't know who's a bad guy. All the good guys look like bad guys and all that sort of thing. I had to ring Brendan on my way home and just say, Brendan, can you explain that to me so I can talk to the boys about it? I don't have any idea what I've just seen. So Brendan helped me out. But one thing I saw... Uh, was that in all those superhero movies and in the comics and all that sort of thing, uh, every hero has to have a nemesis. That's just the way it works. The movie doesn't work if there isn't a bad guy and a good guy. And the reason I was struggling so much is all the bad guys looked like good guys and all the good guys looked like bad. I had no idea who was who because Superman wasn't in it and Batman wasn't in it. And I thought they were the superheroes. But then Brendan explained to me there's a Marvel world and there's a something else world and I just gave up at that point. Anyway. But, you know, Superman, who I understand, has Lex Luthor to be his nemesis, you know, and Batman has the Joker or, or the Penguin or all those other weird sort of guys to be his... What's the plural of nemesis? His nemesi. <laughs> Sounds like it should be nemesi. I've made that up. Anyway, but to understand the story, you need to not just know who the hero is, you need to know what the hero is fighting against. That's the way it works. And the reason they write stories like that is because that's how history works as well. The only way you understand someone in history is when you know what it is that they're fighting against and what it is they're reacting against. And it is the same for understanding Jesus in Mark's gospel. Uh, so who is it that Jesus has been doing battle with during his ministry? As we've looked at the first six chapters so far of Mark's gospel before tonight, that the main person, for want of a better word, who Jesus has been fighting against has been the devil, hasn't it? So, so right from the start... The very first thing that happens to Jesus is he goes out into the desert and he resists temptation from Satan. So right from the start, we see Jesus' nemesis, if you like, who he is fighting against. It's not just a human battle he's fighting. It's a spiritual battle against the forces of evil, against Satan, against the devil. Uh, and then you see that all through as we just keep seeing how there's all these exorcisms happening that are just so far out of our experience but all through, he's fighting the devil. He's casting demons out of people as he wins them back, if you like, from Satan. But then there's this other nemesis, his human nemesis, if you like, and the other opponents who keep popping up are the guys we meet again tonight, which is the Pharisees and the scribes. They are his human opponents 
right through Mark's gospel. So open up to Mark 7, everyone open up. And right at the start, in verse 1, you see the lengths that they would go to to oppose Jesus. Because it tells us that these Pharisees have come up all the way from Jerusalem to argue with Jesus. Now remember, that doesn't sort of mean much to us. We just sort of think Jerusalem, that's sort of where Jesus was. But remember, Jesus was up in the north of the country. He was up in Galilee. And so that's several days travel at that time where there are no trains, no cars, anything like that from Jerusalem. But word has got down to these guys down there in the capital city about Jesus and about what he's been doing. So they have walked the equivalent of from here to Newcastle just to have an argument with Jesus. That's how much they were disturbed by what he was saying. So they come to him and they say, look, Jesus, we've got a problem with you. So look at verse 2. It says, they observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. Now I've got to say, if you come to our morning congregations, you will see that problem on the children's morning tea table every week. Never, ever go to the chip bowl after the mini-mites have come out of kids' church. Just a, a lesson in life for you. You'll be sick for months. But the Pharisees weren't worried about germs. They weren't worried about it. They weren't concerned for the health of Jesus' disciples. That wasn't their issue. No, no, this was about traditions. It was about rituals. Uh, Mark adds an explanation for us because he knew his gospel was going to be read by people who weren't Jews like us. So he goes and he says, all these people with no idea, they're going to need to know what's happening here. So look at verse 3. He says, for the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. And I don't know what a dining couch is for those. So anyway, they had these rules. Uh, At this time, they were oral traditions. They were just sort of spoken rules. After the time of Jesus, they wrote them all down. And so you have them now as the writings and uh, Jews today still follow many of these rules. And so one of those was that you had to wash yourself in a very special way and it had very special rules about where you had to wash your hands and all that sort of thing. Whenever you had been in contact or even thought you might have been in contact with someone who wasn't a Jew. Now, you couldn't find these rules in your Old Testament. They don't come from the Old Testament. You won't find them in Exodus or Leviticus. They were oral traditions that they had come up with to ensure that you didn't even come close to breaking a rule that is in the Word of God. So God's law in the Old Testament wanted the Jews to be separate from all the other nations. So they said, yeah, all right, we've got to be separate from all the other nations. We've got to be distinct. And then there were these other laws in Exodus and other places about how the priests had to wash themselves in a special way before they could go into the presence of God in the tabernacle or in the temple. And so at some point, they came up with these even stricter, more detailed traditions as a way of ensuring there is just absolutely no way you could ever be unclean from contact with Gentiles or sinners. The way I think about it is, is they sort of thought of, of the law as a cliff. And, and, you know, if you broke the law, it's like falling off the cliff. So to make sure you don't fall off the cliff, they came up with all these traditions that are like 20 metres further back that they made as a fence for it. 
So, you know, you don't want to fall off the cliff and die because that's the consequence of breaking God's law. So these are the thing to stop you even getting there. I've come up with a PowerPoint slide, which is unusual for me. I usually leave that for the cooler, more trendy preachers. But anyway, here it is. It's very detailed. Uh, so you see, if that's the Old Testament law, you don't want to even get close to breaking the Old Testament law. So the traditions are like this fence around it to stop you even getting close. So they present their issue to Jesus in verse 5. So look at it with me. He says, Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ritually unclean hands? Now, like we've seen before with these guys, this is not an innocent question. This is not like church question time. Someone says, I don't quite understand what you said about verse 4 or something like that. It's not, Jesus, we are genuinely interested to know the answer to this conundrum. It's an accusation. They're asking the question to point out to everyone else who is there, don't listen to this Jesus guy. He's not as holy, he's not as religious as you think he is, and he's certainly not as godly as we are. And so Jesus, when they ask that question, meets fire with fire. It's really interesting as you read Mark, how Jesus is sometimes incredibly gentle when people come to him, and sometimes he is incredibly scathing. Have you noticed that? And he is gentle when a person is coming out of genuine need and with genuine sin. He is scathing of people who through their pride are refusing to repent. And that's the case here. So for these supposed religious leaders, look at verse 6. He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain teaching as doctrines the commands of men, disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. That word there, hypocrite, uh, was not a Hebrew word. It it meant play actor. Uh, And it comes from the the Greek culture at the time because Jews actually thought it was wrong to be an actor because you were deceiving people. You were pretending to be someone you're not. If you're an actor, please don't. I'm just looking at Rachel there. He's currently in a play. Don't feel, I'm not saying it's wrong for you, Rachel. But at that time, that's what they thought. So to call someone a hypocrite is saying, you are a play actor. So Jesus is saying to them, you are like the religious leaders of Isaiah's day. You play act at being religious. You come to church and you pretend to be all holy and you put on a show for everyone. But in reality, your hearts are not fixed on God. You care more about looking good for your religious friends and having them say, what a holy, righteous fellow he is. You care more about that than about what God actually thinks about you. And especially, he says, you have the gall to put your rules and your traditions that you have come up with to put them as equal or even above God's law. And he says, worse than that, your traditions don't even achieve what you want them to achieve. You wanted them to be that fence to stop people breaking God's law. But, but you see, the law isn't just about don't do this and don't do that. People have this wrong understanding of God's law that all it is about is prohibiting things. But God's law is equally just as much about positive obligations, the obligation to love your neighbour, the obligation to love the Lord, all those sort of things. And he says, what your traditions actually do is they stop you doing the positive things the law wants you to do. They actually stop you from getting to the law to do it properly. So this is my next slide. 
Imagine yourself in one of those, if you're the Pharisees, just trapped in one of those circles. Because Jesus is saying, look, here with all your religious traditions, you can't even get out to get to the law. You can't even get there to do the things it wants you to do, like love your neighbour as yourself and love God with all your heart, soul and mind and all those positive things that the law does. And so he gives them an example of just that, where the traditions trap them and stop them from doing what they're meant to do. And it's obviously something he has seen them do. So look at verse 9. It says, He also said to them, You completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. For Moses said... Honour your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. That's God's law. That's straight from God's word. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But now Jesus says, well, I have seen you using one of your traditions to get out of honouring your mother and your father. So look at verse 11. He says, but you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift committed to the temple, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Now we have no idea what he's talking about there because we don't know what korban is, so I'll explain it for you. One of their traditions was this idea where you could declare something you owned to be korban. What that meant was, it is devoted to God. I've given it to the temple to be used for the service of God. But the thing is, you could still use it. It was sort of like leaving it in your will. You're saying, I'm going to enjoy it, for as long as I'm around, but sometime in the future, I'm going to give it to God in the service of the temple. But the point then was, you then weren't allowed, no one else was allowed to have that thing. You weren't allowed to give it to someone else. You weren't allowed to sell it to someone else because it had been devoted to God and the temple. So, so what actually ended up happening is, your mother or your father became destitute, needed the money, and you said, mum, can't help you. My six-bedroom house in Vaucluse has been devoted to the temple. It's Corban. I can't sell it and give you any money. Oh, my cow, you know, I could give you some milk, but I've called it Corban. I'm still having all this milk, but I can't give it to you, mum, even though you need it. And so Jesus is saying, do you see how perverse it is? You've come up with this tradition that probably had a good intention at the start to encourage people to support God's work, but you've come up with this tradition that's actually stopped you doing the thing God wants you to do, which is care for your parents. So Jesus says, look at verse 13, you revoke God's word by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many other similar things. It's worth just pausing uh, at this point uh, and thinking about what this means for us because in the second half of the passage, Jesus sort of takes it off in a different direction. Uh, So what can we learn from God's argument here, from Jesus' argument? It's not that Jesus is against all rules and all wisdom and all advice and all traditions that are not in God's word. So some Christians say, if it's not in God's word, it's bad. And so you actually have some churches who say, we are sinning tonight by having a drum kit and a guitar and a violin playing. Because in the Bible, they only use a lyre and a harp. Our music would be much more interesting with a lyre and a harp, but I don't know that Troy can play a harp, so anyway. But you see the point, it's it's not the saying, if it's not in God's word, you can't do it. That's not what it's saying. Some Christians misunderstand that. Other Christians misunderstand what a Pharisee is. So whenever anyone gives them a rule or any counsel or any advice or any wisdom that calls on them to do anything, they say, oh, you're a Pharisee. 
making laws. Usually it's when we don't want to do what the person is encouraging us to do. So we're told, read your Bible and pray every day. I think I probably say that in every sermon, if not every second sermon. And then we say, oh, no, but I don't want to be a Pharisee. Don't give me a rule. So I won't read my Bible and pray every day because I don't want to be a Pharisee. That is missing Jesus' point. He wasn't arguing against the traditions in and of themselves. He was against where the traditions become separated from God's word and actually start to take on a life of their own and end up just being done for the sake of doing them. So you see, he was against where human traditions become more important than the truth of God's word that's behind them. You see, when they came up with these traditions, the washing of the hands or or the Corban tradition, they had good motives. It was, let's do this washing thing to remind ourselves that we're meant to be morally different from other nations. But over time, they became more concerned with whether you washed your hands the right way than whether you were committing adultery or not. So you see, they lost it all because they got so caught up in the traditions. But over time, they became a law in themselves, if you like. That was the problem. And you see this all the time in Christians. The last 2,000 years of history, the history of the church, is this just happening over and over and over again. Christians come up with helpful traditions and then over time they forget why they're doing them but they keep doing the tradition even as they throw out the word of God. That is the history of the Anglican church in a nutshell for you. A really good example is the history of robes. Who grew up going to a church where the minister wore robes? I did. There you go. Uh, The minister in the Church of England has traditionally wore robes. Ironically, back in the 1600s, The reason he wore them in the time of the Reformation was to show that he was one of you. So the reason the minister wore robes was to show that he was just like everyone else, which sounds really weird. If you think about it, thinking that there's nothing more unlike being one of us than wearing a white dress when you're a man. But but in, in that time, lots of professions wore robes. It showed that the man was qualified to teach. So teachers wore robes, lawyers wore robes. We still have some vestiges of this in our society. And the fact that you wore a white robe with a black scarf and not colourful things with all sorts of funny hats and all that sort of stuff showed that you are a pastor, a teacher, not a priest, not a Roman Catholic priest. But over time, what happened? The reason was lost Everyone else stopped wearing robes and it just became a law. And so ironically, in many churches today, when people walk in and see the minister dressed in robes, what do they think? What do they think that's signifying? They think that is saying he's different to me. He must be some special priest who who gets to do special stuff with God. Unlike me, I could never approach God like he does. So they have come to signify the exact opposite of what was intended in the first place. But what happened within about 50, 60 years is people started to care more about whether the minister wore a white dress than whether he taught the Bible. And so people are happy for a minister to come in and say whatever he likes and deny the scriptures and say Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but as long as he's wearing the white dress, preferably with a colourful scarf. Do you see what happens? Once it is separated from its reason for being, it becomes an unhelpful, often sinful tradition. 
But it's easy to look back on older people and judge them, isn't it? It's easy to look back and say, yes, yes, those old people, they shouldn't wear robes and they should stop playing the organ and play guitars and things like that. It's easy to do that, but we all do it. The funny thing is, I now start to get complaints when we don't have drums and guitars from people in their 40s and 50s because they've become the organs of the generation before. You know what I'm saying? What happens is over time, even good things become a, that's the way we do it, a pharisaical tradition. See, doing quiet times, you should read your Bible and pray every day. I will never stop saying that. But if that is all a person hears, if all they ever hear is a rule, if you want to be a Christian, read your Bible and pray every day, if that's all they ever hear, the rule, without the reason behind it, then it actually becomes a joyless obligation, a law, a tradition. See, you want to read the Bible and pray every day if you know Jesus, because you love him. And that is how God speaks to you and how you speak to him. You do it because you know the grace and love of Jesus. But when it just becomes an imperative without a reason, it becomes a joyless obligation, a law rather than a privilege. And when we then impose that on others, when we become more concerned with whether people are ticking our religious boxes or not than we are with the actual state of their heart, with whether they're growing in faith and godliness, then we are becoming Pharisees, just like the people of Jesus' day. So that's why we need to regularly go back all the time and say, hang on, why do we do this? Why are we doing this? Where, what is the principle in God's word? What's the biblical reason for it and behind it? And is it still achieving its aim or is there actually a better way now to achieve what the Bible wants us to achieve? So really, really good ideas and traditions, when we let them just go on and on for generations, when we don't keep asking, why am I doing this? They very quickly become the traditions Jesus was condemning the Pharisees for. But now, getting back to Jesus. Jesus now takes the opportunity because the Pharisees were worried so much about what food you ate and how you washed your hands. He uses that to teach a much, much more important truth about true cleanliness. So having called out the Pharisees as hypocrites, Jesus now turns to the crowd. So look at verse 14. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. We, if you've been around Christian circles for any length of time, you just hear that and you say, of course. It doesn't matter the religious traditions you do. What matters is your heart. We don't realise what a radical thing Jesus is saying here because if we've grown up, if not as Christians, we've grown up in a Christianised world, most of us, a Christian-impacted world. This was radical for them. Jesus was saying to them, what food you eat does not matter. We say, of course it doesn't matter. We eat everything at our church dinners and lunches. You know, we'll eat whatever. We'll go to Yum Char and eat chicken feet, you know, whatever. Who cares? Jesus is saying, it's not what rituals you do that matter. It's your heart and your mind that are unclean in God's eyes, not your hands and your stomach. The crowd, though, at that time, they did not get this. They didn't understand it. 
Because after Jesus' death and resurrection, still for 50 years, the church argued about whether you could eat pork or whether you could eat prawns or whether you could eat oysters or whether you could even hang around with people who weren't circumcised. You see, they kept saying, you can't eat with them. It defiles you. See, we get what Jesus is saying right away. But of course, we get that. But there are so many people in our world who don't get it. So you talk to a Muslim or a Jewish person, a, a person who's a Jew today, or even people from a, from a religious Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox style background, they don't get this. When, when you say to them, God cares about your heart and what comes out of it, not what you eat, not whether you've fasted for a month, not whether you've kept a special diet, not whether you've eaten fish on Fridays, they don't get that. Because religious traditions like the Pharisees are alive and well in the religions of today. And it's no surprise the disciples didn't get what Jesus was saying. As soon as they got him in private, they said, we've got no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. Which is sort of consistent with right through Mark's gospel. So look with me from verse 17. It says, when he went into the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Mark then just sort of gives us a little extra interpretation. He says, as a result, he made all foods clean. He's saying that's why he can now eat pork. That's why he can eat prawns. This is why I cook steak on every Friday. Because people say you can't eat red meat on Friday. So I say, well, I will cook a steak. Because you can't tell me I can't do something. God doesn't give you that right, even if you're the Pope. Because what you eat is irrelevant. They haven't understood the gospel if they say you can't eat that food or you must eat that food. But that's an aside. The point is here is food just goes into your stomach. So it can't defile you. And I love how the English translations just can't handle Jesus sort of saying nearly rude words. Uh, in verse 19 so they say it goes into your stomachs and is eliminated (laughs) literally it said it goes in and comes out in the toilet that's what it literally says but we just don't like Jesus talking like that because we like to think he's English when he was a Jew from the Middle East so Jesus is saying it doesn't matter I don't care whether you wash your hands I don't care what you eat what matters is what is in your heart and what comes out of your heart and your mind that is what makes a person unclean in God's eyes so look with me from verse 20 then he said what comes out of a person that defiles him for from within out of people's hearts come evil thoughts sexual immoralities the word there covers all sexual conduct outside of marriage thefts murders adulteries that's the equivalent of sexual immoralities from within marriage Greed, which we've thought about a bit recently. Evil actions, deceit, promiscuity. Literally, that's lewdness. That's sort of open and shameless immorality. And if you don't know what it is, just watch video hits or whatever the equivalent program is now in every film clip. Is that. Then what's the next one? He says there's stinginess. Literally there, it's the evil eye. I love that. It, it means that sort of envious jealousy. We're always looking at what other people have got and thinking, I want what they've got. I'm not happy with what I've got. Blasphemy, that's to speak evil of God and pride and foolishness 
is that stupidity of the person who lives life with no reference to God. And so Jesus says, verse 23, all these evil things come from within and defile a person. So he's saying to them, God does not care what you eat or about your religious rules. He cares about what's in your heart and what's in your mind. And then how that flows out in your words and in your actions towards others. That is what makes us unclean. Now the danger with that is, and I've heard so many Bible studies and so many sermons on Mark 7 that get this wrong, so please listen carefully. The danger with that is we hear that and we say, what I have to do is I need to swap my religious Phariseeing for a moral Phariseeing. Often people from a religious background hear this and say, I see what you're saying, Phil. I don't need to do my Roman Catholic or my Anglican traditions. I've got to be a more moral person. That is not what Jesus is saying here. It's not, oh, so I can eat whatever I want and I've just got to be pretty good and God will accept me. Do you notice how Jesus doesn't say here, do these things and don't do these things? That's how he never says that. If you want to be holy and clean in the sight of God, don't do this. He doesn't say that. He just says, these are the things that come out of your heart and make you unclean. That's what Jesus says. See, what we're going to understand is that list of things is not a description of the awful, sinful person. Well, it is, but only in its description of all of us and all of humanity. And the state of all of our hearts. See, some of us, our sin is far more obvious than others. The person who has committed adultery or or theft or murder or whatever it is, is obviously a sinner. But who of us hasn't had evil thoughts? Who of us is not racked by greed at different times? Who of us hasn't cast that evil, covetous eye at what other people have? Who of us has not been proud and foolish? See, this is not Jesus saying... I want a different type of Pharisee. I want you to be a moral Pharisee. This is Jesus diagnosing the human condition. You see, he's saying we have a sickness in our heart that defiles us before God. It's called sin. We have this heart disease that means left to our own devices, we will face death and judgment. And at this point, Jesus just leaves it there. I really feel for these people, the end of Mark 7, because they don't get the answer. He doesn't offer the solution. We know the solution. We've already sung about it tonight. For that, though, we have to read on for the rest of Mark's gospel. Because this whole book of Mark is about Jesus saying, I have come with the solution to your heart problem. That's what it's all about. What he's doing here is diagnosing the problem that his life and his death and his resurrection provide the answer for. Because Jesus alone had the perfect heart. There were no evil thoughts, no evil eyes, no pride, no foolishness in his heart. And so in his death, he was able to take the punishment we deserve. And then after he had risen, he sends his spirit into us, if we are his disciples, to change our hearts. And make them more like his. See I would hate it if you walked away from this passage. Thinking you had to be less religious. But more moral. To follow Jesus. I would hate it if that is what you heard. Yes 
my Anglican or Roman Catholic traditions don't save me, so I just need to be more moral. If that's what you've heard, you've heard wrong, or I've explained it poorly. You see, our morality will not save us because we have a heart problem. Our heart is just pumping sin into our bodies. And the response to this passage is to say, I am a sinner with a broken, sick, diseased heart, which is why I need a saviour who can wash me clean from my sin and give me a new heart. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not fall into the trap of the Pharisees. In our sinfulness, we know that we like to stand in judgment over others, that we like to make our traditions more important than your word. Help us to repent of that in ourselves. But Father, most of all, we thank you that despite our hearts, that so often are the source of evil thoughts and blasphemy and pride and foolishness, Despite that, you sent your son to wash us clean and to offer us new hearts. For anyone here tonight who does not yet trust in Jesus to know that forgiveness, we pray that tonight they might turn and find it in him. And for the rest of us, we pray that we would never forget that we are not saved by being more religious or by being more moral. We are saved by trusting in Christ Jesus who washes us clean. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.